Hello and welcome to Well Tempered, the podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm your host, Lauren Hynek, chocolate maker and founder at Weekend Chocolate, and new resident trying to figure out life in Barcelona, Spain. On today's episode, I have the privilege of speaking with industry professional Amy Guitard, fifth generation of the Guitard Chocolate Company. Amy is their director of marketing, a cookbook author, San Franciscan, and a hobby surfer. Guitard Chocolate was founded in 1868 by Etienne Guitard, Amy's paternal great-great-grandfather. Before quantum mechanics, before Rudolf Lindt invented the chocolate conch, the United States' longest family-run and operated chocolate company was making chocolate from the bean. Follow along in this episode as we get to know this woman in chocolate and discuss a very different theory of relativity. Amy works alongside her father and patriarch of the business, Gary Guitard. We also will discuss keeping traditions of a 150-year-old company in today's ever-changing and demanding chocolate scene, and their development of innovative relationships and direct impact programs with long-term farmer partners. Now on to the show. I generally ask people if they have a chocolate memory from their childhood, which sort of feels like a silly question, considering that I'm sure there was chocolate all around your house. But maybe first, did you grow up with chocolate at the table? We did. There was always a can of our hot cocoa in our cupboard. And I remember it very vividly. It was a silver tin can it had sort of one of those pop tops that you had to use like a fork or a knife or something to pop open and had a plastic bag inside and you'd open up the bag and it was sort of a moment whenever we would be able to open the cupboard and make some hot cocoa. That was certainly present. I baked a lot as a kid. I think that was also a moment where chocolate appeared. I didn't really eat a ton of it. I think maybe just because it was sort of around And I always remember my dad coming home from work smelling like chocolate. Back then they would wear a suit and tie to work. (laughs) And, you know, he'd come home and he'd take off his tie. And I just remember smelling it and it just smelled like the chocolate factory. There were little signs of it in a variety of different ways, whether it was the smell or whether it was the ingredient that I was baking with or, you know, a hidden tin in our cupboard. It was definitely around That is so cool. I love the idea of coming home to a dad that smells like cocoa. It's pretty nostalgic. Yeah, my dad smelled like motor oil. (laughs) (laughs) He had an engine company. So we'll get to talk about that a little bit later on because we're going to talk about family businesses and, and what that might mean on more of a macro scale. But just as an extension of that first question, do you have a favorite recipe from your book? Oh my goodness. There's so many recipes in that book. Just the basic chocolate chip cookie recipe is quite nostalgic and it just seems so basic, I suppose. But at the same time, a chocolate chip cookie recipe has so many different ways that it can come to life. Um, the, you know, there's a chewy chocolate chip cookie recipe, and then there's like a more crispier one in the cookbook. One of the reasons why I love a chocolate chip cookie recipe is that it really lends itself to learning about chocolate. And whether you make a chocolate chip cookie with baking wafers versus baking chips, your cookie is going to taste and look different. A baking wafer has a little bit more cocoa butter in it. So that's why it's a bit flatter uh, versus a baking chip that has less cocoa butter in it, which is why it's sort of taller and serves as a architectural component more or less for a chocolate chip cookie, which is why the cookies made with chocolate chips might be a little bit higher than those made with baking wafers. You can also play around with sugar and flour and different ratios to give different textures and feels to recipes. So I love the basic chocolate chip cookie, not only because it's nostalgic, but it also lends itself 
sort of as a learning platform to discover different ways of playing with chocolate. And then of course there's the fudgy brownie recipe that I, you know, grew up eating and the persimmon chocolate cake that my grandmother would make for Christmas mornings. So there there are bits and pieces of nostalgic recipes in there, but I, I would have to say the original chocolate chip cookie. All right. And I do love the sound of the persimmon cake because it also feels so California-like. And that speaks, I'm sure, to your to your family's ancestry and, and location there. So for anyone who maybe does not know who you are or has not had the pleasure of having foil bags of chips at their holiday celebrations like we had in my house growing up, please tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at the Guitar Family Company. I am director of marketing. I oversee a lot of our product development, both on the consumer side and then the professional chef side. I also work really closely with our director of sustainability, John Kehoe, and the two of us work closely on our Cultivate Better sustainability platform, which sort of is focused both on the on the ground work that we do, as well as ingredient sourcing and how that impacts the work that we do just within the factory and being a sound, sustainable business, basically throughout our entire supply chain. So I work really closely with him on that and do all of our social packaging design, product launches, things like that. So, um, you know, as a family business, we all wear lots of different hats. And I think marketing in general sort of straddles sales and communications and sort of R&D and all sorts of stuff. We all help each other and we're all a big team. And I've been there for about seven years now. You know, it's an ever-evolving learning opportunity working for your family business. There's never a dull moment, that's for sure. I bet. It's an incredible set of mentors you have there as well. Speaking of the names of John Kehoe or your father, Gary Guitard, it's a really special setting to find yourself in. It definitely is. And I think that these are folks who I sort of try and be a sponge to the best of my ability whenever I'm around them and ask questions and try and learn as much as I can and be humble in all that we have to bring to the table and offer. And it's a super collaborative environment and we're all eager to learn from each other and be curious and explore new possibilities and also learn from experiences that we've had. And I think our average tenure at the company is like 18 years. Our COO has been there for 30 plus years. My designer just retired. She'd been there for 32 years. You know, we've got second generation, third generation employees working in our factory. We definitely run the gamut of longevity, um, as well as newbies who come with fresh ideas um, from other industries or, uh, you know, just within the chocolate industry as well. It's a really fun balance and one that I think we all appreciate very much. Oh, wow. As the country's oldest family-run and operated chocolate business, there is that fundamental element of being an independent company. I would love to hear from you regarding your great-grandfather's role, Etienne, and what he left behind on the company in terms of ethics and values, as you see it. He's actually my great-great-grandfather, which is always weird to say, because <laughs> I don't know, it's just, it's just intimidating. But his uncle had a chocolate factory in France, and he came to San Francisco looking for gold, brought chocolate with him to trade for mining supplies. And when he arrived in San Francisco, he realized he was able to get more money from selling the chocolate than he would mining for gold. So he went back to France, sort of learned the craft of making chocolate and returned to San Francisco and opened up our first factory down along the Embarcadero. You know, chocolate's a grinding business. So back then you couldn't do just one thing. In addition to doing chocolate, he also did coffees, teas, and spices. He was doing a sort of provisions business, also including chocolate. It wasn't until after the 1906 earthquake when we sort of narrowed down to just making chocolate. Also back then, there were lots of other commodities in San Francisco. There was Folgers Coffee, Hills Brothers Coffee, Ghirardelli Chocolate and ourselves. And, you know, it was a very tight knit community. And I think looking back to when Etienne started the company and sort of where it is today, a lot of the same values are present, that being sort of curiosity and innovation. I also think the communal component of the community of purveyors and suppliers and crafters is really important. And 
one of the things that is challenging for a 151-year-old family business that's been around for quite a bit is that because of our longevity, there's a little bit of a stodginess or a old way of thinking. And I, I think that while there is sort of a classic tradition behind what we do, I think there's also an inherent need to constantly innovate and self-reflect and come out with new items or push the envelope a little bit. I think a lot of that not only has to do with just being a 151-year-old family business, but also just the values that Etienne imbued on the business when he first came in 1868. Thank you for correcting me on that. Great, great grandfather. Okay. Just along those lines, Amy, I think it's quite a fascinating element to consider that piece, as you mentioned, that because of longevity, you might be looked upon as being antiquated. But do you feel like there's a certain cliche, whether that's within the chocolate industry or just from perhaps other citizens of California or San Francisco or where people might get the idea that that you're not innovating or however they're classifying you as? What's happening right now in the food space is so exciting. There's so many new businesses. There's the bean to bar market is huge right now. It's top of mind for a lot of consumers. We've never really been great about talking about what we do, for instance, on the ground with farmer communities or new products that we come out with. For better or for worse, it's just sort of who we are. A lot of what drives us is just, as I've said before, sort of curiosity. It's not so much of, you know, like, let's make a big splash with this announcement. Uh, and this is a marketing person speaking, so it's probably a reflection of my skill set. But we don't do a great job at sharing the work that we do. People might not be aware that, say, we were the first ones to introduce single origins. We were one of the first to make a chocolate without cocoa butter. You know, we were one of the first to work directly with farmers on their fermenting strategies at origin and help them sort of dial in the best post-harvest practices for their particular cocoa, you know, whether they're in Ecuador or Venezuela or Ghana. Those are things that are sort of inherently who we are as a company. And again, we've never really spoken about it outwardly, I think, just because it's sort of who we are and what we do. As an older company, it's sort of that balance of reinventing while staying relevant and also recognizing the tradition of who we are and what has sort of started us. It's capturing that and then also trying to, to stay relevant. Essentially, the, the business has been around the same length of time as the modern format of making chocolate. The machines created and invented in Europe you all were right alongside that. Was there something else that perhaps was overlooked from your great-great-grandfather's time frame and legacy that he might have been able or should have been in the history books with a certain invention or a certain stake in, in what we now know as chocolate making? Yeah. I mean, I think that the history books do a pretty good job at highlighting sort of the inventions that helped chocolate and, and the chocolate industry evolve into the way that it is. One thing, and it's not necessarily, you know, having my great-great-grandfather be part of the history books per se, but I think some of the things that aren't necessarily touched on is sort of the American chocolate movement specifically around sort of East Coast flavor versus West Coast flavor. When we celebrated our 150th anniversary last year, we made a limited edition chocolate bar that used beans from the origins that we would have sourced from back when we first founded the company. So if you think about it, in 1868, it was sort of before a global economy really existed. And so if you were a chocolate company based in San Francisco, you could really only get beans from, say, the west coast of South America Indonesia, Sumatra, Samoa, like that whole area, versus if you were based on the East Coast of the US, you could get beans from Africa and the Caribbean, sort of the Eastern side of South America. And just by that nature, you are playing with two very different types of cocoa. East Coast based chocolate companies were creating a chocolate that had a very different flavor profile than companies based on the West Coast. And so the 150th bar that we made was sort of a step back in time and a taste of history, if, if you will, that really used beans that we would have sourced back then. 
the 2018 version of that was using Java as representative of the Java cocoa that we used back then. Hawaiian and then Ecuador and Brazil. And we used a ton of Brazil back then. I'm not entirely sure how we got it because obviously Brazil is not on the West Coast of South America, but I think it maybe somehow got through to Ecuador or around. That unto itself is a really important piece of the history books of chocolate in really looking at flavor evolution. Flavor is a huge component that drives a lot of what we do, both in terms of product development and sort of ethos at the company, in addition to the work that we do at Origin with farmers. Uh, We really see that flavor and quality is value. And so focusing on the flavor component and creating differentiation within the market whereby farmers can get premiums for high quality cocoa and really celebrating the flavors of the countries of origin that we purchase from is a really big part of what we do. So like the conscious flavor development, I think that flavors inherently in some of these history books, but the explicit nature of really talking about the East Coast and the West Coast, I think is a big part. And we would be in that history book page. We're definitely, I think, sort of the forgotten brand within the movement of chocolate companies because we're tiny, but yeah. It makes so much sense because, of course, we didn't have such a globalized world at that time frame. But I hadn't considered that East Coast, West Coast uh, differentiation. And I, and I love that you've just spent some time explaining that to us. And it's wonderful to know that you're there with the company now to create the destiny for the next 150 years. And I'm sure that's a really exciting challenge that you prepare yourself for every day. I appreciate the mention of flavor as well. And I would love to hear a bit more about your Cultivate Better piece as alongside with the flavor labs and what they are and how they work and how they've come to be. Cultivate Better is sort of how we are starting to talk about all the work that we do, again, throughout our supply chain, but really focusing within sort of honorable sourcing um, that we do at Origin. And so one of the components of our Cultivate Better work is um, the Flavor Labs. And they started in Ghana and they expanded to Ivory Coast as well as Java. You really are intended to celebrate the flavors of these countries. And you hear often people sort of talking about African cocoa is bulk cocoa and how there's no real flavor there. Well, West Africa comprises 70% of the world's cocoa. And if you think about that, that's 70% of the world's cocoa because it tastes good. And so there's a lot of work right now being done around planting material that's disease resistant and highly productive, which is great. But one of the purposes of the flavor labs is to also encourage flavor as a component when these governments and research groups are looking at planting materials. You're also looking at disease resistance and productivity, but flavor is also a component that's integrated into the analysis of what planting material will be then sort of propagated within countries. We work really closely with the research institutes of these countries. So in Ghana, it's the Cocoa Research Institute, Craig. You know, I was just in Ghana two weeks ago, and uh, John Kehoe and I spent a few days up at Craig tasting with their research group. They came to visit our factory and did an intense week of training with our team. And John goes back far more often than I do just to sort of check in with them. In Java, we have ICRI, the Indonesian Coffee and Cocoa Research Institute, and work really closely with them as well. So Java is really interesting because it was mostly used for pressing back in the day, and we used a ton of, of Java cocoa. And so this project, while teaching the researchers how to taste, it's also really focusing on fermenting and drying as well within all the work that we're doing. And then Ivory Coast, we started a lab with them They have researchers, including flavor in the breeding that they are working on for the materials that they're giving to farmers as well. So it's a really exciting project that we've got going. It's certainly expanded into other origins, which is really great. And I think one of the things that is most valuable is the cross-learning that happens, is that we're teaching each other. And it's also done in in close collaboration with the governments, which I think is also super important in terms of 
having these projects have a longevity in country. One of the drivers of Cultivate Better is that it is this sort of ongoing journey to work together. And that really is most successfully implemented when you're collaborating and learning from each other. You know, having the governments and the local NGOs focusing on some of these initiatives is imperative to have them have long-term success that really can be owned by the countries themselves rather than ourselves. I would love to be a fly on the wall for a moment because I feel like the majority of people who will be listening to this podcast will not have had the opportunity to participate in anything at this scale or within a program such as this. So what might it look like within the Flavor Lab or, you know, what could a sensory analysis be like if we were there together? How does that go? They have basically mini chocolate making machinery in their labs, very similar to what some bean to bar folks might have in their facilities. And so they get the beans, they do a roast, um, they grind them into a liquor and then they taste them and they have a tasting panel. It's it's, uh, cross-functional for the most part from individuals who might be working at the research institute, but might represent different departments still within cocoa whether they're a breeder, whether they're a genetic scientist of some sort, but they all sort of sit around the table and they learn and they they taste and then they share out their thoughts. And it's just including flavor again as part of the conversation and making sure that that's top of mind when we're looking at sharing new breeding material within farming communities. And, you know, we have this phrase that we often talk about at Guitard and my dad uses it. It's sort of his beacon and it's uh, incremental degradation. And it's one of those things where at first you might not realize that things are changing. And over time, over a series of changes, things divert from what they originally were intended to be or what they originally tasted like. You can have incremental degradation in a finished bar of chocolate. You can have incremental degradation in cocoa supply. You can have incremental degradation in in pretty much anything. These flavor labs are a way to sort of keep tabs on making sure that you don't lose that historical flavor that's so important to the identity of these countries and the diversity of flavor. You know, we source cocoa from all over the world. Every country has its own unique flavor and own way of doing things. And that's something to be celebrated. And that level of artistry is something to be celebrated. And it's so important to not lose that. And this is just one step in in doing that. I would love to get a little more granular about artistry with you here, because I feel like that's in the bean to bar world at this point in the craft chocolate scene. It's sort of this concept that's juggled back and forth a lot about how with every changing harvest or with every new bag of cocoa, there's almost a new form of flavor or new bar that might come to be. On the other end of that, I also see this area of artistry in that you can have someone such as Guitard with the skill that you have creating more of a consistent product. And I don't mean that in a negative connotation. I'm just simply saying I I see the art in, in creating value in a repeatable flavor. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And it's one of those sort of classic conundrums that I sort of scratch my head on as well. You know, I think that we really pride ourselves on consistency and quality, but I think inherent in the beauty of the industry, which really inspires me, is sort of the idea of exponential artistry. And I say that as sort of a reflection of the entire supply chain. You have your farmers and they're cultivating cocoa and fermenting and drying it. And that's sort of a level of tradition and artistry that they're bestowing on their crops and their trees and their tradition and their heritage. And that crop and cocoa is then given to us. And we sort of bestow our own level of tradition and artistry and craft to those beans and create our own finished product that's a reflection of our craft and artistry. And then it's our job to then hand that product over to our end consumer, whether it's professional pastry chef or a confectioner or a home baker who can then bestow their own level of artistry and creativity to the end product. So if you think about it, you have this whole exponential evolution of artistry where the whole is truly greater than the sum of the parts whether it's the quality component or the level of artistry that's poured into it. And I think that is inherent across 
all levels of what we do as chocolate makers. And I think that that is incredibly humbling and also inspiring for me when I think about what we do and the impact of what we do. We are dealing with an agricultural product at the heart of everything. And that's also something that is brings me such great joy that not only do I love chocolate and the finished product of it, but I love knowing that all that we're doing is coming from the earth, something that is beauty and art. Absolutely. Yes, I so I so agree with that piece. I feel like even more as the years and like the seconds tick by and we can have the ability to focus on something natural and something that goes back into the earth. We have the luck and the joy to be able to process something that is edible. There's something really elemental about that. For us, making the most pure end product is our goal. And my dad always says, we let the beans tell us how they want to be roasted. You know, I think that that is really a true element to what we do as well. So it really is about celebrating the heritage and the tradition of the industry and of the product that we're making. And how do you view, Amy, your father's chocolate making style? Is it his own? Has it been learned? Does it continue to evolve? Is he even the head chocolate maker right now? Like, I'm actually not even sure. His business card, I think, says chocolate maker on it. (laughs) My dad is a very, he's a very intuitive chocolate maker. It's pretty inspiring to sit with him. When we taste, there's a large group of us who typically taste. We taste every day at 11. But when we're developing new products or trying new beans or tasting liquors, there's usually a diverse group of us that sits together and tastes and provides feedback. And, you know, we are a pretty tight team and we all represent different perspectives and pick up on different things. And I I think the best way that I would describe my dad is that he has a very intuitive way of thinking about cocoa and making blends or treating a single origin. And it's one of those things that's super intimidating to me because I sort of sit back and scratch my head and wonder how I could ever have that level of inherent direction. He's always looking for feedback. He's always interested in working together to to get to a finished product. But I think before I started working at the company, I knew that he was pretty well respected in the industry. I mean, now it's normal, I suppose. But It's always odd seeing your parents in their work zone, I guess. When you're actually working side by side, you really see their level of sort of intelligence and industry contributions and perspective. And he does a great job at thinking outside the box and really being creative about the industry and and challenges that are facing. And I think we also represent an interesting perspective because we are one of the smaller companies out there. And so we have a unique perspective that he certainly brings to the table. It's quite moving, Amy. I'm sure there are days where you're like, oh my gosh, I work at a family business. But there's, I think that inherent question within a human being that's like, what if I was doing this with my parents? Or what if I was doing this with my siblings? And it's a whole other can of worms of like what that means and how that's developed in various forms. But to have that intimacy, those moments that you'll cherish forever. Yeah, no, and I I appreciate that. I mean, it's definitely one of those things where I feel a very sincere sense of responsibility to honor the tradition that my great-great-grandfather set forth when he opened doors in 1868, but also sort of an, an intense sense of responsibility toward my dad and honoring his contributions to the company and recognizing those and also wondering, well, what will my contribution be? Or what is my duty then? It's an interesting sort of dynamic, especially for me, who I would qualify myself as someone who is quite competitive with myself and very hard on myself. And so it's one of those things where you know, you've got the pressures of the history of, of the company and the legacy while also trying to find my own path. And, you know, I think about this constantly and it's also an interesting driver 
and one that sort of pushes me to do constant gut checks and make sure that that I am paving my own path as well, which is hard. Yeah. I also recognize myself as a like, super competitive person, but it's who am I comparing myself to? Right. When you have that role model, so to speak, side by side. I operate day by day. When I think about the future, I think about the cultivate better and really elevating that as sort of how we live and breathe. And my dad doesn't necessarily tell me what he expects of me by any means. My background's in marketing and brand management. I used to work at Cliff Bar before I started working at Guitar and then I went to grad school and, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And that influences more in terms of what I want to do and where I want to go with my own focus and how that fits into the company. I'm, I try and have confidence that it will sort of iron itself out and sort of work its way as time progresses. You know, sometimes I feel like I need to rush to define things, but I think what I'm trying to do most right now is try and take a deep breath and trust and also try and find balance. Things are moving so fast right now, especially within the food space. Again, as a company that was started sort of within innovation and that's inherently part of who we are. And so I I have no doubts that we won't necessarily lose that. But I think one of my goals as well is making sure that that's top of mind for us as we continue to evolve. It's awesome. Thank you for sharing that piece. I feel like those that will have a chance to listen to this are in the complete opposite spectrum in terms of maybe just starting or considering starting their own company. So that projection of will I be able to pass this on to a future generation, if that is such the case, might not even be there, right? Because you just, you have no idea if you'll be able to get through the first two, five years of your business. And I'm mostly thinking of myself here, but like, that's also what is so inspiring about hearing your story is that the challenge, right? But also the the opportunity to be able to pull something along with you even more in the future is is very awe-inspiring. I think one of the most humbling moments is thinking about sort of the enormity of working with my dad and thinking about, you know, what would my grandfather think about the industry right now? He passed away in 1988. So much has changed since then. And what would he think about me and what I'm doing and what I think and what my worries are and the directions that I ponder in terms of taking the brand and, you know, all that stuff just sort of hangs over me very often. It's just sort of ever presently there. And I think for some new businesses that are out there, I think we all have things that hang over our heads that are related to family members or, you know, expectations or things like that. I think as people who are starting your own business, you have a drive and you're driven by by something, whatever that might be. And when I wonder what my grandfather would think of all that I'm doing and what the company is doing and what we're all doing and building, that's also what keeps me going and, and drives me to do better, I suppose. I'm really humbled to hear you speak about that. There was something that I had said almost half-jokingly in in our conversation earlier, but that was you were born into this family that is creating joy ultimately, right? Like delivering a product that is used for celebrations and for building businesses based on making people feel good and taste delicious things. And I'm curious if, you know, considering your geography or just the format in which your great-great-grandfather arrived from France and had he gotten into the Dungeness crab business or had you been (laughs) building sailboats, do you feel like you would have these same feelings? Is it your personality or is it also cacao that you feel a connection to? That's a really hard question to answer because I think it's so complicated in terms of what I do and why I do it. I mean, I think there's no doubt that cacao is a product that um, I love for so many reasons. And I think first and foremost, it's that sort of product that is representative of so much in terms of history and the heritage and of 
cocoa in the countries where it's grown and also the how chocolate was made and you know that unto itself is fascinating and i think there's also something really wonderful about cocoa and chocolate in that there's so many different elements of the business you've got the sourcing side the market side the brand development side the chef side the manufacturing side there's so many different sides of it that all influence each other as is often the case with many industries but i think particularly with chocolate and sort of going back to that reference of artistry that we were talking about earlier that that's really the basis for it all and you know i've always been interested in the food space and creating products that consumers can enjoy in whatever capacity that's always been a driver for me in business and also believing that business is one of the best vehicles to do good as long as as that's your <laughs> your motto but the combination of those two was really sort of a, a big driver in my entering the food space and then the chocolate space i think that there's also the element of it being my family tradition and I would like to think that if we had a Dungeness crab business that I would likely fall into it for the same reasons but I think there is something really special about chocolate itself that is really unique but I do love sailing and I do like crab so you're a San Franciscan what can we say <laughs> Yeah Thank you for walking down the existential path with me Oh, gosh, I love those existential questions. Keeps us on our toes. I feel like it would be a nice segue to discuss some of the things that you're doing right now and that you're loving being a part of, whether that be the social media or what other elements of being the director of marketing that occupy your day or like keep you innovating in terms of your own role. The industry is at such an interesting place that we have a lot of really exciting stuff that we're working on. And working closely with my dad on them is also really exciting. We're really building out Cultivate Better beyond just the flavor labs and doing more programmatic work on the ground. Again, a lot of it is in partnership with local NGOs and governments and groups that are based on the ground. And this is not just within West Africa. I think a lot of programs sustainability programs are focusing on West Africa but we're really trying to take a more holistic look at all of our origins and look at how does women's empowerment work within Ecuador and how does that sort of evolve and what can we learn from those programs that can influence some of the work that we do in Ghana and really try and think holistically about all that we're doing and so that's really exciting and challenging and so a lot of the stuff that we're working on right now is not a short term it's sort of long term reflection and evolving some of our thinking and trying to push ourselves to create whether it's a new product or a program that is new and different and i think we're at a point right now where we're doing that you know within cultivate better and how can we bring something new to our customer base as well you know we always say our customers make us a better company and i think that that's very true in terms of pushing us to create new products or new programmatic things or you know really trying to take our business to the next level by reacting to some of their needs as well and it's a really big job because when you say customers, you're speaking about not only like average daily consumers, but also people who base their entire business upon chocolate, the chocolatiers and the other baking professionals that might be using your product. As director of marketing, is that a fine line between how you balance how you're marketing such a product and to whom? Most of our business is B2B, so we sell chocolate in as an ingredient to a wide variety of customers and then a smaller segment of our business is to consumers. And so the consumer facing marketing is what most people see and they feed each other, right? So it's a balance between how we are conveyed to the consumer segment and then how that gets translated to our B2B customer base. But we have customers who we've had for again, multiple generations. It's one of collaboration and we learn from each other and, you know, we are 
experts in chocolate making, but we are experts at chocolate making because of the industry and the support and the collaboration that happens as well. Marketing is quote unquote marketing, but it also has a lot to do with learning. That's a, a big part of what I do. So I would just really like to give you kudos because I do spend maybe more time than I would like to acknowledge on Instagram. And I have noticed that your account has hooked up with some really interesting and hip bloggers and influencers. So that must be your work and would like to congratulate you for your efforts there. But would also just love to talk about not so much again where social media is going, more so the importance of marketing through social media. I appreciate that. Thank you. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I think we play really well within the Instagram space, I will say. Perhaps that's just because I have a inclination toward photography a little bit and it's visual. But I think that there's a little bit of an element of mystery behind chocolate. And I also think that there's education that can occur around sort of the composite value of chocolate, I suppose you could say, that there's products made with chocolate versus chocolate as a food and different ways that it can sort of pop up in our lives. And I think visual storytelling is a great way to bring some of those components to life. And I also think, and this comes as no surprise for those of us who work in chocolate and food in general, is Food is a shared value amongst all of us. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's one of those things that we all need. And not only from a nutrition side of things, but also from a communal side of things and, you know, breaking bread together and and sharing recipes and passing traditions down through, you know, moments where we eat a chocolate chip cookie or have a hot cocoa or have a chocolate bar. And so I think that I find social media as a way of telling those stories. I also think as a family business, those stories are very pertinent to who we are. You know, you're creating moments for people to enjoy. I find Instagram as a way of again, telling our story and telling those stories of how chocolate comes to life, but also connecting with people and seeing how they come to life in their own lives. And I think Instagram particularly is, yes, it's curated. And yes, there's all those things that makes your brain sort of go in circles like, why am I doing this again? (laughs) But at the same time, there's also an element of people sort of just intuitively sharing moments of baking, you know, a recipe for Thanksgiving and having insight into those moments in people's kitchens and birthdays and things like that really brings meaning to what we do as well. So I think that's why I love social media. And those things also fuel and inspire us to continue to do what we do on that platform as well. It's a fun way to connect with people and also bring insight into some of the you know, behind the scenes of of what we do and who uses us. Um, It's one of the ways that we're able to share that a certain restaurant is using our chocolate in their dessert that you might not know about. You do have the opportunity to go to a ton of fun restaurants and try what they're making, don't you? I absolutely do. And, you know, luckily I worked in restaurants as well. And so I have sort of a guttural nostalgia whenever I'm doing a tasting at a lineup or something like that with chefs. There's so many beautiful restaurants out there. And I think it's just, it's really fun to be able to taste alongside and be able to taste our chocolate and desserts. I remember I was at Zuni, which is a really one of my favorite restaurants in San Francisco, along with several others. And they use our chocolate in their Gâteau Victoire. I remember I was there eating there with our pastry chef and um, they brought a slice of the cake out and the chef put it down and right in front of me. And he said, this is you. And it was one of those things that I was like, no, 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 this is you. Like you made this, you know, and it was just a funny moment of perception where I was so humbled by him saying that. But, you know, in my mind, I was like, no, 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 this isn't about me. This is about your craft and your innovation to create this, this recipe. And he saw it completely opposite. It was a really funny, cool moment. I'd say you're both right. To your point earlier about the exponential artistry that kind of follows the chain, like 
everyone touches it and passes on their knowledge and value and then the next gets a take. So, so cool. I was just going to say, I mean, I think the other thing too is that like in a finished product, there's so many other ingredients too, right? Like think about all the other stories that can be told, whether it's the sugar or, you know, we don't make chocolate bars with inclusions in them. But think about the salt that a confectioner is using to top their bonbon or, you know, the almonds that are being used to make the almond praline layer. Like those are such important ingredients as well. And chocolate tends to sort of take priority in the storytelling piece. But I'm always thinking like, God, think about all the other ingredients and the same level of passion and artistry that's being poured into all these other pieces that are, again, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And so you peel the layers of the onion back and really try and take a look like how cool would it be if we could just do that for everything and really get insight into all, not just focusing on chocolate, but really everything because they all work together. Maybe we'll get there one day. We'll see if humanity is capable. But we can start with ourselves, which is the most important lesson, right? Yes. I have one final question before we move to our final, final questions. It's it's just a further extension of this piece with not solely social media, but just this idea of I feel like when your book came out, the Guitard Cookbook, it predated in my mind some of the other cookbooks that were coming out from bloggers or chefs that were known through the quote unquote Instagram sphere because of their photos or their personality. Do you ever feel like what you might be doing through photography and social media these days is a supplement to where the book came from and and that piece of you that needed to write it? The premise behind the book was growing up, I was baking often and I would use a cookbook that we had on hand at the chocolate company. And it was just like a little staple bound cookbook. And I was always really frustrated that there weren't the stories behind the recipes in the book because yes, you bake something because of that it looks good and you want a brownie versus say a chocolate cake. So that's, you know, a driver, but I also was really curious about the stories behind the recipes and where they came from and who's made them in the past. And was this recipe made to test out a new product that we were making? When we make new products, we tend to test them in application. And so a lot of the recipes were also made in response or as part of the R&D process. You know, that was also the impetus behind trying to tell the story behind some of these recipes. Going back to what I was saying about Instagram as a way to tell stories and sort of pull back the curtain and reveal a little bit of the emotional side of chocolate and the familial side of chocolate. And I think that the book was certainly an attempt at doing that. And it was a super fun project. I'm really proud of the work that the team put into it. It's a fun sort of capsule of family memories and company memories that went into the recipes that are featured in the book. Indeed. Well, I will put links so that people can find it if they already don't have it in their collection. Yay. Thank you for that. And we will close now, Amy, with just the two questions that we ask all the guests. The first one dabbles a little into our existential chats from before, and that is, if we were headed to the cosmos, what three chocolates would we take with us? And in in this case, what would you take with you? Oh, goodness. Well, one of my favorite chocolates is our milk chocolate. It's an estate from Hawaii. So it's our Kokolika 38%. It's one of my favorites. So I'd certainly take that one. I would probably also take a liquor, like a unsweetened chocolate, because you can do a bunch of stuff with it and it's delicious and it's like a caffeine burst. And then I guess I'd also probably take drinking chocolate, like our grand cacao maybe, which is a mix of cocoa powder and liquor and sugar just because it's delicious. And it's actually one of our first products, I think that we made, I would take those. And that's just from our little portfolio. That's not even including (laughs) the wide world of chocolate out there. The possibilities are almost endless. You've already done such a great job of organizing your thoughts in terms of what cacao means to you, but I will put it eloquently for the show, and that is, Amy, what does cacao mean to you? I would say tradition, culture, community, 
history and quality and memory. Thank you for sharing your memories and your traditions and your history and your family with us today. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Amy, for being well-tempered. And thank you all for listening. This marks the 30th full-length episode of the Well-Tempered Podcast. It's been almost three years. Gosh, it's been a lot of work and a very gratifying experience. I'm going to be doing some soul-searching this summer on how, in the future, I can bring you more quick, efficient episodes from more voices in the industry. I might need some help doing that. I will certainly keep you in the loop of what ideas come to life. Amy Guitard has so generously shared her family's recipe for classic chocolate chip cookies with the publishing rights from Chronicle Books that is now found on the Weekend Chocolate website. After this amazing song by Anna Garcia that you're about to listen to, head on over to weekendchocolate.com, that's W-K-N-D, and find all the show notes for this episode as well as that chocolate chip cookie recipe, which... In my opinion, there can never be enough cookies. Again, I'm sincerely grateful for all of you listening, and I look forward to what the rest of this year has in store for us. This show has been produced and edited by me, Lauren Heinick, and as I was mentioning, that beautiful chocolate store song is by Ana Garcia, a Malagueña from Spain who has a brilliant voice and incredible musical talent. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it and stay well-tempered. One morning when I was a child, my mommy asked me with a smile, what you will be when you get older. The only thing I have clear is just to make this place a bit warmer. She looked at me and with her voice I she answered If you 